Welcome to the British American Football Coaches Association podcast, a resource designed to support both British football coaches and coaches from around the world. This podcast features special guests discussing techniques, scheme, philosophies and culture for the sport of American football to help develop and grow the game worldwide. Now here's your host, Adam Lillis. Hello and welcome to the Back of Coaching podcast with me, your host, Adam Lillis. We'll be shortly be joined by Coach Bob Davies to discuss how he handles the various challenges he faces as an offensive coordinator. This interview was recorded a few weeks ago and since then Coach Davies was recently announced as the new offensive coordinator at the Carlton College Knights. So huge congratulations to Coach Davies. I reached out for a comment on this and Coach Davies said, I'm very sad to leave Franklin Pierce but couldn't pass up the opportunity at such a prestigious school and I'm looking forward to getting started. So let's hear what Coach Davies has to say about developing his offence. Hello and welcome to the Bafka Coaching Podcast with me, your host, Adam Lillis. I'm delighted to be joined today by the offensive coordinator of the Franklin Pierce University Ravens, Coach Bob Davies. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Just hunkering down for the end of days over here. <laughs> yeah, aren't we all? Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, just in case the listeners aren't aware of who you are and what your background is, would you like to give us your sort of a tour around how you got into football, how you progressed into coaching and how you got to where you are in the current day? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't start by saying that I've been very, very lucky. I've been lucky as a player and as a coach to have been around some people who are a lot smarter than I am, uh, and even luckier that they took the time to teach me. My offensive coordinator when I was playing, I played at an FCS school in New Jersey called Monmouth University. My offensive coordinator there was a guy by the name of Kevin Morris, who was a brilliant guy and taught me a lot about football, uh, and then helped me land my first job over at Princeton University, which is also in New Jersey. Uh, where I got to work on a really, really good staff. Uh, Bob Serace was the head coach there, who's a great guy. Sean Gleason was the offensive coordinator who taught me a lot. Uh, guys like Andy Oric, who taught me offensive line play. Um, and then from there, I was able to go on to St. Lawrence University uh, as the quarterback's coach, which is up in, in way upstate New York on the border of Canada. And then went there um, – we set the single season record for uh, passing yards and completions and all that stuff and, uh, and got a call one day from Franklin Pierce University out in the great state of New Hampshire and our head coach, Russell Gaskamp, and uh, came on down here, interviewed, loved it, and have been here since. So I just finished up uh, almost exactly a year. I started here March 1st of last year, so a little more than a year. Uh, and... Of all those schools that you've said that you've uh, coached at, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they're all from the Division One FCS level, Division Two and Division Three. Um, yes. What, what are some of the differences between coaching at those different programs and maybe some of the challenges that came with it and how you overcame them? Uh-huh. They all have very unique challenges. Uh, w- one of the things that you'll get caught up in when you're at uh, a lower level school is sometimes you feel like we've got problems that nobody else has, and, and that's not true. Everybody in the country has problems. They're on different scales, but pretty much everybody has the same problems. Everybody you talk to doesn't get enough practice time. Everybody you talk to wishes they had more facility space. Everybody wishes there was more money. Everybody wishes they had more experienced players. Everybody's got all the same problems. It's a matter of 
how you're able to to best address those problems in your specific situation. So I'll give you an example. When we were at uh, when we were at Princeton, that's a place that has more money than anywhere else in the world. I mean, that school has has more money than they know what to do with. So the recruiting uh, side of things there was pretty easy. The school sells itself. You know, you're competing against other great schools. Don't get me wrong. It's it, you're still competing against other Ivy League schools, um, but money was never really an issue there. And then we would go to. I went and started working at the Division Three school uh, at St. Lawrence where all of a sudden money becomes much more of an issue. And so you just have to find creative ways around that. How do you structure your official visits? How do you structure your time on the road? Uh, here at Franklin Pierce, I recruit the area that my parents still live in. So we're able to save a lot of money in the budget that way because I can just stay at my mom's house while I'm recruiting. And she's happy because she gets to see her son again. And our coach is happy because he's not paying for hotels every night. And I'm happy because I'm getting home cooked meals. So can you find creative solutions uh, to deal with those problems? One of the other issues we have here, because we're a brand new program, is uh, staff size. We've got a pretty small staff. And so how do you get around that? How do you structure practice to make sure that every position group is getting the time and attention that they need? How do you structure meetings to make sure that nobody's getting shorted on the teaching in the classroom that they need? So there are all sorts of differences. A lot of it's always going to come down to budget and facilities and things like that. But uh, you, you can't ever get caught up in, oh, I wish we had this or I wish we had that because everybody's got problems and everybody's pretty much got the same problems. It's just on different scales and, and how you deal with it given your situation. So it's interesting you mentioned uh, the smaller coaching staff that you've got at uh, Franklin Pierce yeah. at the moment. So who you're the offensive coordinator. Who have you got working underneath you? So on our side of the ball, we have, uh, we have three coaches on offense and a volunteer. So our head coach also coaches the offensive line. I coach the quarterbacks and the running backs. We have a receivers coach, and then we have a volunteer uh, who splits time between the tight ends and the running backs at practice. Uh, if he's not there for meetings, then the head coach will take the tight ends with the offensive line for any run game meetings. And the receivers coach will take the tight ends for any pass game meetings. So usually those sort of flex positions are the ones that uh, you have to get the most creative with when you're a man down on a coaching staff. So tight ends is usually a big one on the uh, defensive side of the ball, your, your nickel or your overhang, you know, your hybrid safety type position, whatever you call that on your defense is usually the guy that ends up splitting time. Sometimes he's with the linebackers, Sometimes he's with the defensive backs and the safeties. So you can always make up for it. There's just going to be some overlap, and you might have to put in a couple more hours of prep if you're a guy that's handling more than one position. And, and that's going to relate to a lot of UK teams over here who might not have 8, 10, 12 coaches on their staff. So mm -hmm. what sort the of – The other thing that a lot of people will do is, uh, you know, if, if you know that's going to be an issue for you, you can fit your scheme around it. When I was at St. Lawrence, we didn't have a tight ends coach. And that was fine because we didn't use a tight end. We were an air raid school. So we were able to make up for it that way also. Sure. And um, in terms of, I mean, you've just touched on it there already about being creative in sharing the, um, some of the positions between multiple coaches. But I imagine it's quite critical that before 
season starts, before pre-season even starts, that you're all on the same page just in case a volunteer coach goes down or or some other issue comes up. I imagine that's no something doubt. that you go, you go through quite in great detail. No, no doubt, no doubt. Organization and communication is everything. Because you're dealing with, I'm not exactly sure how big your guys' rosters are, but on the average college football team in America, you're dealing with 90 to 100 to, uh, at some schools, even more than that players on a roster who are from all over the country, who have all different schedules and have all different flights booked for going home on vacations and all this stuff. And you've got to be organized. You've got to be able to communicate and you've got to be out in front of the stuff. Uh, you have to make sure that everybody's on the same page because at the end of the day, coaching is a very unique job, especially on a football team. I mean, you're being asked to take 90 to a hundred college aged males and get them all in the same place at the same time doing the same thing. I mean, that doesn't happen anywhere. There's nowhere in the world that just happens organically that you get a hundred, you know, guys from 18 to 22 that are all in the same place on the same page at the same time. So that's a unique job logistically and you have to absolutely be organized. You've got to communicate. Everybody needs to be on the same page. One of the things that this pandemic has, has actually been good for, in my opinion, is streamlining the way we communicate and the way we're able to install and do meetings because we don't have the same time that we usually had with the kids. We don't get to call them into the office or see them around campus. And so you have to find, again, creative solutions to problems to be able to get information quickly and get it out there in an organized fashion. Right. We're going to start getting into uh, offense and maybe go through some plays and schemes that you like to, to run. But before we do all of that, how about, I mean, do you have a, an offensive philosophy that you like to lean on um, regardless of what uh, program or scheme that you run? Yeah, the the three, I usually like putting things in three. I think there's, there's a, a nice rhythm and a little bit of power behind grouping things in threes. Uh, and so the three words that we use here at Franklin Pierce are fast, flexible, and physical. Uh, fast kind of speaks for itself, and that's a buzzword for a lot of offenses right now is that up-tempo scheme. What we talk about when we talk about being up-tempo is winning between the snaps. So you have to be able to, again – communicate quickly and efficiently so you can get lined up and, and win between the snaps. Flexible is a big one for me. If I were to say that, that I leaned on anything uh, as far as offensive philosophy, I think flexibility is the biggest one. Being able to be flexible within your personnel, being able to be flexible with your tempo, especially. Uh, I'm not a huge believer in going fast all the time. I don't think the beauty of being an up-tempo offense is that you always snap the ball fast. I think the beauty of being an up-tempo offense is that you always might snap the ball fast. So a defense has to be ready and respect the fact that this ball might get snapped. And then you can really start to play around and have some fun. Uh, and then also just being flexible enough with your schemes to fit the guys on your roster. When I was at St. Lawrence, we had a quarterback who was a true pocket kid and was great at it. And we could do a lot of drop back stuff with him and full field reads, all that stuff. Uh, the kid that we played last year wasn't that same kid here at Franklin Pierce. He was a kid that uh, has a baseball background, is more of a, an athletic, 
quick release kind of kid, uh, you know, good throwing off of different platforms and getting the ball out fast. So we had to structure things more around him. Uh, and it's something that I, I don't think we, we really started to do a great job with until uh, the middle, the middle part of the season when we could finally uh, get a good look at, okay, this is what he's good at. Uh, and then the last part is physical. At the end of the day, this is a, this is a grown man's game. This is a game about moving somebody against their will. And that has to be communicated constantly. That has to be something that is stressed at every single position from running back to quarterback, to offensive line, to corner, to safety. Everybody has to embrace the idea that we're going to be a physical downhill football team above all else. That's great. Um, you, you mentioned the phrase win between the snaps. I love the sound of that. I'd love to dig into that a bit deeper and, um, could you expand on what you mean by that and what sort of things are you doing on a daily basis of practice to help you achieve uh, winning between the snaps? Yeah. Yeah. Win between the snaps is I stole that from somebody. I can't exactly remember who right now, but uh, you know, any good thing that anybody's ever done in football has probably been stolen from somebody else. Uh, but, it, but the point of it is where are you making up time? If you want to be a team that plays fast and is up-tempo and is keeping a defense on its heels, then they can't feel like they've got a chance to substitute. They can't feel like they've got a chance to communicate their calls and take their time looking at the formation. They've got to feel like, oh, snap, we got to get this done quick. And for them to feel that way, you have to throw them off in the time that they're making those communications. It's not just enough to snap the ball quickly after you were lined up. It's that dead time from when the ball gets blown dead to when the ball gets snapped again. How long is that time? How much time is coming off the play clock? Uh, when I was working at Princeton, we used to literally have a person whose job was to chart that. They would sit there and they would write down on every single play how much time was left on the play clock because that time in between the snaps is hugely valuable. And there are certain things that you can do that are just easy, logical things to save that time and to make the most of it. One of the things is when our kids get tackled down to the ground, they hand the ball to the official. They're not allowed to toss the ball to them. They're not allowed to spin it to them. They're not allowed to leave it on the ground. You get up and you hand the ball to the official. Because if he drops that, that little toss you throw to him, that's two or three seconds that we're losing. Because he's going to have to sit there and pick the ball up and and get a grip on it and spot it. And that's two, three, four, five seconds that we're not able to get lined up and snap the ball again. Um, the other thing we try to do is have players backpedal onto the field when they're substituting so that they can see uh, the signals as they're getting onto the field. And then I think you can also be creative with your signals. Uh, I was listening to the, the podcast you did with um, um, the receivers coach uh, from out in California, which was awesome. He had Cody Hawkins, Yes, Cody Hawkins. And what he talked about was how they try and get their offense into more one-word form. He talked about those basketball team plays and that sort of thing to make them go faster. Uh, and, I, and I know a lot of people who have a lot of success doing that. And we do similar things here. But the thing I really believe is if you're an offense that's going to signal, then it doesn't matter how many words your play call is. It matters how many signals it is. And so one of the things we started playing around with last year was even if we have a play call that's two or three or four words long, 
can we get those signals communicated quicker? Can we, for example, communicate certain tags without using hands? Like if you're hand signaling the play, but you're nodding your head at the same time, does that mean something? If you're hand signaling a play, but you're stomping your foot, if you're hand signaling a play, but you're holding a certain color board up, all these things that through the signals can be communicated in one motion. And that way you can get that all without wasting the time of multiple signals because a four or five word play call is going to take some time to signal if you're using a hand signal for all four or five. If you can communicate all four or five words in one motion, whether it be stomping your foot, nodding your head and hand signaling, which would be a lot of moving parts. I'm not suggesting anybody give themselves a stroke trying to pull this off, but just simple little things like that. If you have a tag that you really like that you put on a lot of different pass plays, come up with a way to signal it without using your hands so that you can signal it at the same time as a base pass play and save yourself a couple extra seconds between the snaps. That's some great advice. Sir. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to take that one because I am a, a signal OC as well. So thank you for that. Um, before the, we start recording, we were talking a bit about your time at uh, Franklin Pierce and starting freshman quarterbacks. And that's something we have over <laughs> yeah. in the UK. Uh, we have players walking in off the street wanting to try and play football and we're trying to identify who can play QBs and a lot mm -hmm. of the time we start players that have never played football before. Um, and we also talked about the fact that you incorporate RPOs into your offence, which mm -hmm. is a very popular thing over here in the UK. So I'd love to know a bit about maybe some of the challenges you face, but what are the successes and how you've come to be successful running RPOs with a freshman quarterback? Sure. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start. That's kind of a two part question. I'll start with the, the freshman quarterback side of things. Um, the last two years I've started true freshman quarterbacks. When we were at uh, St. Lawrence, we had a quarterback room with seven quarterbacks in it. Five of them were true freshmen and the other two were sophomores. So we didn't have any upperclassmen in the entire room. And then we got to, when I got to Franklin Pierce, we had a team of all freshmen, because obviously we're a brand new program. So we had, uh, of all the kids on our roster, I think we had about 80% freshmen and then a handful of sophomores and one senior. So uh, I definitely understand the struggle uh, of playing young quarterbacks. And it has some frustrating days, but it's got a lot of really exciting days because you get to be there from the ground floor. You get to build, uh, build a program with them and, and build an offense with them and, uh, and see them grow through a lot of challenges. The biggest challenge, in my opinion, to playing a freshman quarterback, there are two of them, and they're two sides of the same coin. And that is getting them to understand, especially early in the season, especially during training camp and things like that, don't confuse good results with good decisions. Just because it worked against uh, you know, the, the third string uh, free safety who doesn't exactly know what he's doing on our scout defense, just because it worked on him, doesn't mean you were right. And the flip side of that is don't confuse bad results with bad decisions. The, the position is hard enough already and things are going to go wrong around you. And sometimes you're going to do everything you can at the quarterback position and a play is just not going to go your way. And young quarterbacks have a tendency to feel like they've got to make a big play on every play. And if they don't, it's all on them. And that's not the truth. So those are the two hardest things I think uh, to get kids to understand because until they go through it, 
and screw something up and see it on film and realize, oh, coach was telling me the truth this whole time. They really don't want to believe it. The other thing you asked about was incorporating RPOs with young quarterbacks. RPOs are a messy world because you're throwing a pass and nobody's blocking for a pass. So they're just inherently a messy world. They're really, really valuable. Uh, and, it, and if you're able to find a kid who's good at it, then they can be incredibly effective. But again, it all starts with the type of kids you've got behind center. Uh, you don't need to be an incredible athlete, in my opinion, to run an RPO system. What you need to be more than anything is a really good decision maker. And you've got to be a calm, cool, composed kind of guy. The best RPO quarterback I've ever been around uh, was, was uh, the kid uh, when I was QCing at Princeton, who was a California kid. And he had that calm, cool, composed California kid mentality. And he was a really, really smart, good decision maker. And he was awesome at them because he was very selective with when he was going to pull and throw and he wasn't going to put the ball in harm's way. He was also a fifth year senior. So when you're talking about a young quarterback, those are characteristics that you have to try and identify early on. And if you have a kid that's good at that sort of thing, then you can give them a little more rope. But until you've identified those characteristics, just try and keep things as simple for them as possible. Try and keep his reads as consistent as possible. Don't get too crazy uh, with any of the route structures, you know, that you're, that you're throwing or anything like that. And try and give him as many this or that scenarios as you can so that he's not pulling the ball and then having to go through two or more other decisions after that. It's either this or it's that. And we'll live with the results. Excellent. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're uh, at Franklin Pierce. You also coach the QBs and the running backs. Yep. Are, are there? Do you have everyday drills that you hang your hat on that you always work on, or do, is it more of a range of different drills? Oh, we have everyday drills. Uh, we're not doing anything, you know, that nobody else is doing. I, I don't think that I'm. I'm sort of a drill minimalist. Um, I, I don't go and have 13 different pieces of equipment, not because I think that's a bad way of doing things, just because we have limited staff and time and resources and we can't. Uh, so the, the everyday drills that we'll do, obviously I'll get out before practice and warm the quarterbacks up. I like to be there for that every day um, because that's really the one time that quarterbacks get individual time during practice. The nature of that position is that every other position on the field is dependent on you and you're dependent on every other position on the field. So you don't get a lot of true individual time with quarterbacks at practice. It's always you're with the receivers doing something or you're with the tight ends doing something or you're with the running backs doing something. So that pre-practice time with them that we can work mechanics and those sorts of things is valuable. And we'll do that every day. And then with the running backs, uh, the everyday drills we'll do are, are just certain ways to, get their feet warmed up and, uh, and get them going through the usual movements that you'll do at that position, you know, making one cut, making two cuts, making a jump cut, uh, making a jump cut, getting back vertical and, and having to react off another defender. Just a quick progression that we can go through in five or so minutes uh, and usually requiring them to take a handoff while they do that too, because since I coach the quarterbacks and the running backs, they're both with me. So we can get our meshes in while the running backs are working on the next phase of that play. 
and just slowly adding elements. So go through the drill one time where they're just taking the handoff and bursting for five yards. Go through it a second time where they're taking the handoff and they're reacting to somebody in front of them and making a cut. Go through the handoff another time where they're going to make one cut, get vertical, and react off a defender down the field. Just a quick progression, nice and simple, uh, that can get the guys you know, mentally ready and, and warmed up and also continue to rep the basics that are so important, like just getting a handoff. Sure. Um, right, so let's get into more scheme-related stuff, which is what I'm keen to, to go through with you. Again, we Great. talked a little bit before we started recording. Uh, you, you told me a few bits about what kind of run schemes that you like to do. So let's start with the run game first. You've got a new program. You've got freshman quarterbacks. What angle do you approach your run game with? Are, are you just a, are you a coach that does the same thing wherever you go, or I know you you fit to your players, but can you perhaps talk us through some of the the run game elements that you do, what type of blocking you do, um, and how you go about installing that? So the best thing that happened to me in, in my entire career is I got to spend a year with the offensive line. I got to spend a season with the offensive line, learning from a guy by the name of. Andy Yorick, who's a really, really good offensive line coach. Um, and I recommend to anybody that you spend some time with the offensive line if you want to be coaching football, because that will change the way you look at everything. And it did that for me also. And I'm really, really thankful for that. If you think football is a game of inches, wait till you spend some time with the offensive line. That is a game of inches. I mean, the difference between your hand placement being on the play side number or in the middle of his chest can be the difference between a five-yard gain and a five-yard loss. So it's really vital uh, that you understand how hard those guys' jobs are because they have a really demanding, grueling, difficult job to do on every single play that they never get any credit for. So what we try and do here is put as little on them as we can and just allow them to play fast and allow them to play confidently. That more than anything else is super important. They have to be able to line up every single play with some confidence. And if they're up there because you've thrown a million different schemes at them and they're just trying to figure out which foot they have to step with first, you don't stand a chance. Take as much scheme off those guys as you possibly can so that they can get rep after rep after rep and be really confident in what they're doing. Here specifically, uh, we pretty much run inside zone, outside zone, and gap scheme, you know, power and counter. We don't go far beyond that. And we really won't change up our, our schemes week to week at all. If, if there's somebody coming into a, a certain look that we know we can't block, we're not going to change a scheme to adapt to that guy and put more mentally on the offensive line. We're either going to tag it with something outside the box to control that guy or just not run that play into that look, which I think is often the best answer. So on that note, you said you've got inside zone, outside zone and gap as your mm -hmm. kind of primary run blocking schemes. Do you complement those, um, the plays with those blocking schemes together or do you do, you do it more with the RPO system? Uh, I'm not entirely sure which are you, are you asking like is there a certain RPO that will only tag with a certain run play um, yes and I'm just wondering whether your inside zone plays complement your your power plays 
Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, a, a lot of the, the teaching I think is similar on the offensive line, but, but no, we keep those pretty separate, you know, inside zone is inside zone and gap is gap. Um, you know, you, you might be taking a similar step or using a similar technique on a, on a play. Um, but we, we teach them, you know, mostly separately as far as the RPO side of things. Uh, there are certain RPOs that we think pair better with certain run plays. I think more of your, if you're pairing a, a horizontal route, so a slant, things like that, uh, that usually pairs better with a horizontal run. You know, if you're trying to RPO somebody and throw a slant behind them, you're probably better off pairing that with an outside zone kind of play because of the flow that it'll create on a defense. If you're trying to RPO somebody with a more vertical route, then you're better off pairing that, in my opinion, with a vertical run, an inside zone or a downhill gap scheme, something like that, because the run fits that you're going to get out of the defense will be more downhill also, so you can get a ball thrown in behind them. So we try and stick to that philosophy as far as pairing plays. Uh, but outside of that, most of our tags can apply across the board. It's just a matter of whether or not we choose to apply them on a bunch of different things. And that, again, comes down to what we think our kids can handle. Sure. And uh, talking about the pass game, do you have uh, a passing concept that you just absolutely love, that you love to hang your hat on? And if so, could you perhaps talk us through it and how you install it and what uh, quarterback reads are? Sure. So we've had a couple of those over the years. Um, when I was at St. Lawrence and we were an air raid team, we lived and died with four verticals. That was our bread and butter. And I love the four vertical passing game. I think that's awesome. I think, uh, with all the different adjustments, bending and sitting and all the things you can do reacting to coverage, there's a lot of open space that you can attack using that play. We don't do that so much here just because we don't operate out of the same personnel. We're not a 10 personnel team. When you're an 11 and 12 personnel team, it doesn't marry as well with four verticals. So one of the first, uh, one of the first plays that we'll install in the dropback game is what we call our burst concept, which is like an inverted smash. So on one side, on the play side of the concept, you're going to have uh, like an inverted corner route. If anybody plays Madden, you'll know it as the corner strike route, where the outside receiver is going to stem in and then push vertical and then break out on the corner. And then the inside receiver, the number two on that side, will run to the flat. He'll run an arrow if he's attached to the line of scrimmage as a wing or a tight end. He'll run a speed out if he's a, a slot receiver and it's just a simple high low on the corner out there, you know, not breaking any new ground on that one. And then on the back side of it, we like to pair it with a shallow concept. So that's just a high low between two in breaking routes. Uh, so different places I've been, we've run them different ways at St. Lawrence. It was a, a 15 yard dig from the inside receiver and a five yard dig from the outside receiver or five yard in, excuse me. Here we break the dig at about 10 to 12 yards. And we, and we run the five yard in behind it. Uh, however you choose to do it, whatever works for your program. But that's one that we really like. And for the quarterback, it's a pretty simple read. We try and keep the quarterback's pre-snap decision-making the same across almost all of our schemes. And for us, that process is basically, I'm going to find my free safety, who for us in, in our system is usually the boundary safety. And I'm going to find my detached linebacker. So if you're in, let's say, a two-by-two two set and you've got a tight end and, a, and a, a flanker to the boundary and you've got a slot and a second receiver to the field, 
then your quarterback is going to be looking for the boundary safety or the free safety. And he's going to be looking for the linebacker uh, who's detached from the box to the field. Because those guys very often are your best indicators of coverage. Those are the ones that are going to tip the scales, so to speak. If that free safety is starting to cheat towards the field, if he's starting to cheat over the ball, then there's a good to fair chance you're probably about to see rotation. And if you're not about to see rotation, at the very least, you're not going to see any sort of cloud coverage back towards that guy's side because he can't get back over uh, a vertical route from number one in time. if He's cheating all the way to the field. That's the, the general logic, at least. You're going to see some guys in some defenses that will break that rule because they've got a, a dude or an athlete there. But we'll always find those two guys. Uh, the detached linebacker is important because he's got a lot of space he's got to account for. So it's tough for him to disguise also. So if he wants to try and be an extra guy in the box, he can't line up all the way in the flat. And if he wants to get to the flat, he can't line up all the way in the box or he's not going to be able to cover that ground in time. So those guys have a tough time disguising the coverage. So we have our quarterbacks every single play find those two players. That's how they're going to make a pre-snap decision about what sort of coverage they think they're about to see. Do I think I'm going to see a too high coverage? Do I think I'm going to see rotation one way or the other? And then after that, you've started to narrow the scope of what could happen. Uh, and I know I'm getting a little away from the specifics of, of the scheme we were just talking about, but uh, when you're talking about the quarterback position, especially with young guys, the worst thing you can do is line a kid up back there and tell him, hey, listen, there's a million different things that could happen right now, and here's your answer to each one of those million things that can happen. I mean, talk about paralysis by analysis. So we try and pre-snap, eliminate as many of those things as possible so that he can at least narrow it down to, okay, one, two, maybe three things is about to happen here after the snap. What's a good answer for that? So you take a play like we were just talking about with the burst concept, and we said it's a high low on the corner on that smash side. Well, if he gets any sort of three over two on that side, if he gets any sort of defender, uh, a lower defender, a second level defender, out leveraging the flat route, then he's just going to get off that side right away because I don't know what's about to happen over there. I don't know exactly what the coverage is going to be, but I know they've got three guys for two routes and that's usually not very good for me. So I'm going to get to the other side as quickly as possible. And on the other side, then I'm just going to high low uh, that, that shallow concept. And if all goes wrong, then I'll get it down to my back. So we try and give them, especially like I said, with the young quarterbacks we've been playing, we try and give them a consistent process pre-snap, find those two guys, make a decision about what you think the coverage is going to be. And then based off of that, figure out who you can attack in this. If I know I've got one guy who's in stress, meaning he's going to have to cover two different routes, then that's probably a good place to go with the ball. If I know I've got a side where they have more than enough guys to cover the number of routes I have over there, they might not necessarily cover it. They might slip and fall and uh, sit crisscross applesauce while I'm running wide open down the field. I have no idea. But there's a good to fair chance they are going to cover it. So I don't want to be on that side. And that's how we try and approach things. Just keep it as consistent for them pre-snap. And even if it's not going to get you to the perfect answer on every play, can we get them to a good sound answer as often as possible? Sure, and I imagine in terms of helping quarterbacks identify coverages and things like that, 
what you've described there would be paired with watching opponent scout film and the tendencies. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's important that I stress that finding those two guys every snap is when we're talking about generic defense. You might play a team where the indicator of the coverage is somebody completely different. Uh, and we've played teams that way. And that's important to communicate to your guys. Sure. So one final question before we wrap up. Um, I'm going to try and put you on the spot a little bit here, but I'm hoping that I'm hoping that your experience with Franklin Pierce, which, as you described, is a brand new football program. If we dropped you in the UK and you had a relatively new football program, and you just had a room of maybe 30 athletes of a range of experiences, range of uh, ability, and you were asked to put together an offense, what sort of things would you do to try and identify which of those 30 players are the ones you're going to say, well, we're going to get him the ball every time, or he's only good for this, um, for this type of skill. Is there anything that you've had experience with in terms of player identification and trying to get them the best fit? Good question in that scenario. Um, Cause here over here, it's obviously a little easier because when we're recruiting, we have a lot of film on these guys, but if you were to walk into a room of people you've, you've never seen play before, uh, the first, it's, it's going to happen chronologically, right? So the first thing you're going to see is you're going to see the measurables. Uh, and that's important. It's not the most important thing, but that's important. You know, if you've got a kid that's five, six and 140 pounds, he's probably not going to be your left guard. Um, so you're going to see the, the measurables. That'll be step one. And then getting them out on the field, uh, getting them out there and running them through some drills and uh, seeing how they move. Uh, the, the one position that's a little bit unique in all of that is the quarterback position. The rest of the positions, I think you can, uh, if you have 30 athletes out there and you, you run them around for an hour or so, you can start to get a feel for, okay, this kid moves well enough to be a receiver. Okay. This kid, uh, you know, he's a little, little too stiff to be a receiver, but maybe he can make a downhill cut at a running back. And, uh, you know, this kid's a bitty, a pretty big, strong kid. Maybe he's on the offensive line. So, that's probably the easiest way uh, as far as then identifying who your quarterback's going to be. Obviously you got to see who can throw the ball. Uh, you got to see who's a good decision maker. And that thing, that, that part of it can be judged off the field as well. What sort of decisions do they make in their everyday lives? Are they a good decision maker? Are they a mature kid? Are they going to be a kid that handles adversity well because they're going to go through it at that position? So that would be the, the start of it for me it would just be, getting a look at the kids and the measurables and then getting them out on the field, seeing the way they move around. And after that, uh, you're exactly right. You've got to then be able to say, okay, who do we want to get the ball to? You know, who do we want on the field? That's where it starts and ends. It starts and ends with who do we want on the field? Who do we want to get the ball to? I heard a coach talk at a clinic this year and I thought it was a really good point that he made because he was talking about RPOs and things like that. And he got up and he basically said, you know, we don't care about the scheme. We don't care about what sort of RPO we're, we're running or what route or what the run play is. He said, what we care about is are we designing the play to no matter what, go to an option we like. So even if the decision is completely wrong by the kid handling the ball, is he choosing between two good options? Is he choosing between handing the ball off to one of our better players or is he choosing to throw it to one of our better players? regardless of what the scheme is. And I thought that was a really good point that he made. And, uh, and that marries up sort of with what you're talking about is getting in there and identifying regardless of what scheme we're running, because that's all secondary. 
who are the guys that we want on the field? Who's the guy we want to run behind? Who's the guy we want running? That's where it all starts. Brilliant. Thanks, Coach. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Um, I'd like to give our, our guests an opportunity to share their social media handles or contact details in case listeners want to get a hold of you. Are you happy to do that for us now? Sure. My Twitter handle is at Coach Bob Davies. Pretty straightforward with it. If you get to at Coach Bob, I'm usually one of the only one or two people that, that pops up. But at Coach Bob Davies, Davies is spelled D-A-V-I-E-S. That's brilliant, Coach. Uh, best of luck for the 2020 season. Hopefully it goes ahead and uh, hopefully we'll get you over in the UK soon. Thanks a lot, Coach. Love what you guys are doing and really appreciate you having me on. Thank you again to Coach Davies for taking the time to talk to us and the very best of luck to his time at the Carlton Knights. As usual, subscribe and follow the podcast. Reach out to me at Coach Lillis on social media with feedback and tune in next time for another BAFCA coaching podcast episode. (music) 